Well, good afternoon on this last great day. Looks like all of us sickos have overcome. <laughs> I was just looking at the schedule for the feast and there's nothing left. It's all gone. The end. It's probably good. God knows how long to do these things. Uh, our bodies wear out. We get ready to go home. We get ready to go to our routines and, and all. But it's certainly been a wonderful time. Well, we have one more episode of special music be presented today by Christie, who will sing the Holy City.
As I sit here, I think that we might ought to make a change. Maybe we shouldn't have special music before a service, uh, perhaps right after we're together. It, uh, it almost makes me feel inadequate to just speak when someone can sing. And of course, that was very fitting for the time we're here. This being the last great day, let's go to Leviticus 23. There's a couple things I want to review here and maybe make a point or two. Some of the original command about the Feast of Tabernacles. In verse 34, he says, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of the seventh month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days, to the eternal. We have just done that. On the first day shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no normal work therein. Seven days you shall offer an offering made by fire to the eternal. And on the eighth day shall be a commanded assembly to you. And you shall offer an offering made by fire to the eternal. It is a solemn assembly. And you shall do no work Therein. So this is the eighth day. It says seven, and then it adds an eighth. And it has very great meaning in having that eighth day. <clears throat> then he summarizes uh, about the feast. And then in verse 38, he picks it up. Besides the Sabbaths of the Lord, and besides your gifts, and beside all your vows, and beside all your free will offerings which you give unto the eternal, uh, that's in addition to the uh, burnt offerings in verse 37. Also in the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered, he repeats it here, in the fruit of the land you shall keep a feast seven days, first day will be a Sabbath, and the eighth day will be a Sabbath. But why do you move out of your house? You shall take you on the first day, we moved in the evening before, but actually it says on the first day they were to build a booth, so uh, really it's the second night that we're commanded to be in a temporary dwelling. Anyway, they took different uh, branches and so on and made a temporary shelter. And you shall keep it a feast to the eternal seven days in the year, it will be a statute forever in your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. Now, why do we do this? Why can't we stay comfy in our own normal bed where we like and have made comfortable for ourselves? You shall dwell in succoths or temporary dwellings in the Hebrew. Seven days, all that are Israelites born shall dwell in booths. And here's the reason, that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel to dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Mitzrayim. I am the eternal your God. So the point of this is a temporary dwelling where God took them away from their homes for a special reason took them out in the desert 
to show them that he was God. So the main point, the only instruction or explanation that's given here about our temporary dwelling is that God is our deliverer. He is the only one who can deliver us. And, of course, that was a delivery way back then. And the Psalms and other scriptures talk a great deal about coming across the Red Sea and their deliverance and how God has delivered in the past and will deliver in the future. And then we have many, many prophecies of the end time which also remind us of that flight out of Mitzrayim because we too will have to flee here at the end from our captors, from Satan, and from those whom he will send after us. So this is something that was to go on and on. Most people think it was done away when the Old Testament was supposedly done away with as well. But we'll see here in context that is not the case. But I think you can extrapolate that a little further in that our life on this earth is temporary and that God has to deliver us from it. Uh, all we can expect down here is a physical death. And everybody's been doing that now for over 6,000 or nearly 6,000 years. And uh, it's continuing to this day. As we sit here, there are people dying all around the world right this moment, either naturally or by war or starvation or whatever other reasons, being killed as they're born. All kinds of reasons people are dying, but it's happening around the earth right now. And it's a lesson that we are to learn is that this life is only a temporary thing. And if there's not something beyond that, what was the point? <laughs> there has to be something more than this. So this is temporary. And this earth, in its present form, in our present form, is very much that way. Now God is going to bring a new heaven and a new earth. We just heard a little bit about it. And we will be transformed and changed and made permanent a permanent home in the holy city, and the 144,000 will comprise a great amount of that population that will be there, along with the Father and the Son and the angels and so on, but the bride herself will live there as her permanent home. So, this day, in particular, specifically, are these days during this feast, are a reminder of that. And if you find, as I do, it's a little inconvenient to go outside and get in a bed that I'm not used to every night or you're staying in somebody else's home and maybe sleeping in their bed that isn't yours. And it's, it's a, a little bit of a bother. Uh, it upsets things the way you normally have them. It's not really that bad, but it ain't really all that good either. If you, It's not something you would necessarily just do. I don't see you do it in July or March uh, just because it's fun. 
No, we do this because there's great meaning in it. That we are temporary and only God can deliver us from this body of sin and death. He is our deliverer. So, it's to remind you that I am the Lord your God. A lot is said there in just really one verse. Now, I've been working toward Isaiah 35 in uh, this series, and then I missed the sermon and didn't quite get there, but it applies uh, in at least three different periods of time. So I want to go back there right now uh, to Isaiah chapter 35. Now, we've been talking about how this has an application even before the millennium where God takes care of His remnant that He brings to build the temple in Jerusalem uh, that it might be defiled and God might show through His treasures that He is God. Not just the church, not just Israel learning who God is, but the whole world is going to learn who God is as a result of the things in Isaiah 44 and 45. But here are the conditions, both just before the millennium, uh, particularly during the millennium, and then over on into the great white throne judgment. In each case, it's a larger number of people. A small remnant or a tithe of... Uh, God's people to build Jerusalem and the temple before Christ returns, in glory at least, and then a great or a greater number of people in the millennium, a hundred about a hundred million will survive this end time war and holocaust that is in progress. That's all who will start the millennium, according to Daniel. And those people will increase over a thousand-year period of time, dramatically, and I imagine there will be billions of people again by the end of the millennium. And we'll read about it, but then in the Great White Throne Judgment, there will be how many ever people have lived on the face of the earth since Adam and Eve until uh, the end of this current age that we're coming to an end of, will all be resurrected at once. There have been estimates, I don't know how close they are, that there have been about 65 billion people live on the face of the earth in the 6,000 years. Could be less, could be more, easily, since they lived 900 years for the first 1,600 years, and uh, must have been an awful lot of people when Noah's flood came. And we've got over 8 billion living here right at the moment. So anyway, lots and lots and lots of people. But here, it says what kind of life or conditions they will live under. The wilderness and the solitary place shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and bloom as the rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice, even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given uh, unto it, the excellency of Carmel and Sharon, they shall see the glory of the eternal and the excellency of our God. Now, those are mountains that had trees, woods on them. So, not just roses, but heavy forests 
will be across the wilderness. Strengthen you the weak hands and confirm the feeble knees. We get in this life where through accident, through age, through disease, where our hands are not strong anymore. And they will be strengthened so that they can work. I hear people around me that are getting older. I've had at least one in the last two or three years say, Would you tighten this for me? Will you loosen this bolt for me? My hands are getting too weak. I can't do it anymore. And so I do it, and I can't do it as well as I used to do it either, as we lose that strength. Confirm the feeble knees. I've had my knees injured enough time in sports and accidents and so on that when I get up in the middle of the night, I have to confirm that they are going to work. (laughs) Sometimes they don't work so well, and I nearly fall down till they have enough strength and direction and coordination to actually work because I feel the cartilage popping and moving in there, and it has to get... It has to get situated right before the knee will work. So it sometimes they have to work a little while till they get in place. So we all suffer with these things. Say to them that are of a fearful heart. People are of fearful hearts, generally, in society. There are a lot of things we can fear. Uh insecurity, loss of jobs, health, loss of family, uh, war, disease. There are a lot of things a human being can fear. That fear will be removed. Say to them that are of a fearful heart, be strong, fear not. He even tells us here at the end as we will embark on building the temple in the city of Jerusalem to be strong and fear not. Because there's a lot to be fearful of as the New World Order gains more and more traction and life becomes more slavery than anything else. A great deal to fear because they're going to be killing a lot of people. So fear will be removed. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. Even God with a recompense. He will come and save you. That's kind of like we just read there in Leviticus. Only He can deliver. And it says, He will come save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as a deer, and the tongue of the dumb sing. For in the wilderness shall waters break forth and streams in the desert. What a joyous, wonderful, beautiful picture that is. I don't mean a flash flood that wipes your car off the road, but clear, beautiful springs, creeks, rivers, lakes, ponds will be all over the desert. The parched ground shall become a pool, and the thirsty land springs of water. 
In the habitation of dragons, where each lay shall be grass with reeds and rushes, not bare ground, not thorns and thistles, but grass. Well, I guess it's about time to shut the Bible up and go away, because anybody that's been in the desert and lived around the desert figures this is impossible. And it is. <laughs> except for God. And He is the one who created it all in the first place, and He is the one that caused the deserts to occur for His own reasons, and He certainly has the power to fix it. And an highway shall be there, and a way, it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. That's the one argument I've had with the song, The Holy City, over the years. Uh, it's a beautiful song, beautiful music, beautiful words for the most part. But it says, And all who would might enter. And the Protestant who wrote that song had not read much Bible. They'd read about the Holy City a little bit, but it doesn't say that. It says, The unclean will not pass over the highway of holiness to Jerusalem. And you go back to Revelation 20 and 21 itself, and it talks about the holy city there and the Father and the Son being the temple of it, and that nothing unclean or defiled will enter in. So, Protestants aside, all who would won't enter. Uh, only those who have been sanctified, set aside, justified, glorified, or if they're still human in the physical realm in the millennium of the great white throne judgment, if they're sinners, <coughs> liars and thieves, stop at the gate. <laughs> You're not allowed in here. God will not allow that at His throne. Remember, that's part of the prayer we're to pray that Christ gave as an example uh, is that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He is not forcing His will to be done here on this earth at this time, quite obviously. He's allowing it to go wherever man and Satan want to take it at this time. Now, He controls the way things are in His throne, and He only allows a little bit of uncleanness there now. Just a little bit. Why? He allows Satan to come there as a witness against you and me. To come and accuse us. Accuser of the brethren. And he's the only unclean thing that is allowed there. I doubt if even any of the uh, demons are allowed there. Only Satan himself who comes, since he's still the prince of the power of the air and the present ruler of this earth, he's allowed to come there. But that's all the unholiness that God allows at his throne. And fairly soon, as Revelation 12 points out, he's going to be cast down and never allowed back. Because he will have accused us for the last time. No more will God put up with it. And he's going to come down then and chase the church to Zion with an army and try to kill every last one of us since he can't go accuse us anymore 
to try to get God to kill us, if you will. You know what he does? He goes up there and he says, you said in your book that the wages of sin is death. And if you sin, you will surely die. Why do you let them live down there? Why don't you do what your word says and kill them all? That's what he does. He goes to God's throne. He sees your sin and mine. And he goes and reminds God of it. Now there's one of yours down there. That one? Are you kidding me? Do you see what he was just thinking and doing? God says, Remember my son who defeated you when you tried him and how he died for their sins? I'm extending grace because of my son. That shut Satan's mouth. What else can he say? He just toodles on back down here and tempts us some more. And then he goes back the next day. Starts all over again on us. This is going on every day as we live our lives down here, totally blissfully unaware of what's going on in the universe. But there come a time when Satan will not be around and no one who is a sinner will be allowed in the holy city. It will be completely a way of holiness. Unclean will not pass over it, but it shall be for those wayfaring men, though fools shall not err therein. They're not going there. No lion shall be there, nor any ravenous beast shall go up thereon. It shall not be found there. But the redeemed, those redeemed of God through Christ, shall walk there. <clears throat> And the ransomed of the eternal shall return and come to Zion with songs and everlasting joy upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow and fighting and sighing shall flee away. It will just depart from them. We'll never have sorrow and sighing again in the kingdom of God. What a beautiful time. Let's go to Isaiah 65. We've used this one some to refer to the great white throne judgment, but uh, <clears throat> it applies to the millennium as well when you understand it. It says in verse 17, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered nor come into mind. A new age, a new culture, a new way of doing things is still going to be on the earth, he says we'll reign with him here on the earth a thousand years there in Revelation 5.10. But it'll be a different world. It will have been transformed, just as we read in chapter 35. In fact, it says in the previous uh, chapter, let's go back to 17. Of, oh, no, 17. Is, that's where I'm going to write this chapter. The path will not be remembered. 
you know, I've thought about people that I've known, relatives even, that might have died, and they'll come up in the great white throne judgment, or be in the kingdom of God. And I wonder, considering this, just how much you would even go back and talk about their life here. They will come up in such a new world where everything is beautiful, everything blossoms as a rose, water everywhere, no dangers, no problems, perfect health. Why would you want to reminisce about this mess we're in today? They're not going to be an attitude of, let's go talk about back when we were blah, blah, blah. They're going to be like, show me what we got here. Wow! Their eyes will be not only able to see, but they'll probably be that big around. Look at all this! Why in the world would you want to go back and talk about what we've been through here? You won't want to talk about it. And they won't. They'll want to see what's so exciting ahead of them. So, it'll not come to mind. But be you glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. Behold, I create Jerusalem a rejoicing and her people a joy. You can't say of that of any human Jerusalem that's been here on this earth. Whether you're talking about the one of the Arabs built in the Middle East or you're talking about the one that used to be here. There were people there who created all kinds of problems and even killed Christ at Jerusalem. This will be a different Jerusalem, a heavenly Jerusalem. And I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. And the voice of weeping shall be no more heard in her, nor the voice of crying. Nothing will happen that would cause you tears of anguish or pain or hurt. There shall be no more an infant of days, nor an old man that has not filled his days. For the child shall die a hundred years old, but the sinner being a hundred years old shall be accursed. Now that gives us an indication, I think, that children born during the millennium will not have a 70-year lifespan. God has varied it over the years, 1,500, 250, down to 70. Conditions will be better then. No pain, no disease, no problems. So, you'll live 100 years and go, bang, uh, fall over at 100 years of age. That's kind of like it was with Moses, remember? It says he was up to 120, and his natural strength was not abated. Uh, he could still see, he could still hear, he could still function all over his body at 120. And God says, it's time to go die. Yes, sir. So he marched up the mountain and lay down and died. It was time. It wasn't because he was diseased or somebody killed him or anything of that nature. It was just time. Same here. Kid will live a hundred years because that's how much time God will give to judge their life and whether they'll be in his kingdom or not. But someone who sins 
and determines they will not obey God, they'll die a hundred years old and be accursed. In other words, uh, damned by God. And they shall build houses and inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards and eat the fruit of them. So this is still talking about a time when there's human beings left on the earth during the millennium and the great white throne judgment. We've said that the great white throne judgment will be a hundred years based on this, but this isn't just talking about that time. This is the new heavens and the new earth. And I went through and showed that the new heavens and the new earth are at the beginning of the millennium, not later as we you believe many years ago on Worldwide. Uh, that's in the series on how exclusive is the church. There was a lot that was learned as that series was being developed. They'll not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree are the days of my people. And my elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth for trouble, as we do today. Inflation eats it. Uh, so many things happen. For they are the seed of the blessed of the eternal, and their offspring with them. And it shall come to pass, as in Isaiah 35, that before they call, I will answer. God will anticipate your needs, what you want. And before you can even ask, he'll start providing answers. Wouldn't that be a neat way for things to be? While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together, and the lion shall eat straw like the bullock, and dust shall be the serpent's meat. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Eternal. What a beautiful time. That's what we're here, or we're here uh, during the Feast of Tabernacles celebrating, are these conditions, and today in specific for those billions who will come up in the resurrection we'll be reading about here in a little bit. And to prove that this is talking about the new heavens and new earth being the millennium, go on down to verse 22 of chapter 66. We used to think that after the great white throne judgment, uh, the earth would be burned and then recreated and made new. Uh, that was promulgated back in the late 40s, 50s by a minister or two in the church and kind of caught on and we taught it, but it isn't biblical. He says, For as the new heavens and the new earth, which he said here, He'll have new heavens and new earth. And then you go on down and read, and it's talking about humans having babies during the new heavens and the new earth. It isn't a recreation of a burned cinder. It's a readaptation, a recreation of what is here now. He's done that before. After Satan sinned, and the dinosaurs and all that life of that era were buried, turned upside down, fossilized, and so on, he had a new creation in Genesis 1-1 and made all things new from the way they had been under Satan's rebellion. 
So the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, shall remain before me, says the Eternal. So shall your seed and your name remain. And it shall come to pass that from, from one new moon to another, and from one Sabbath to another, shall all flesh come to worship before me, says the Eternal. So there'll still be physical human beings during the new heavens and new earth who will come to worship God on new moon and Sabbath. This isn't after all people have been destroyed. And they shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of the men that have transgressed against me. For their worms shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched, and they shall be an abhorring to all flesh. So those who sin will still be being destroyed. So Isaiah 65 is speaking of the beginning of the millennium through the new, uh, or through the great white throne judgment. Now let's pick up one more, Zechariah 14. I referred to this earlier in a sermon during the feast here. <coughs> in terms of our focus during this feast, that was in verse 16. It shall come to pass that everyone that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall even go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, chapter 14 begins with the return of Christ and the glorification and the setting up of his kingdom. So, people who say the Feast of Tabernacles is done away with uh, are way ahead of themselves. It'll be being kept during the millennium and the Great White Zone Judgment. And if some don't come, they'll have no rain. They'll learn to keep the feast. So it'll be being, it's being kept now. It was kept in the Old Testament. It'll be kept in the millennium in the world tomorrow. Now let's go to one more in John 7 and check out the New Testament. John 7. Should we still be keeping the Feast of Tabernacles in the last great day? Here in chapter 37 and verse 37, in the last day, that great day of the Feast, we read about that in Leviticus 23, 7th and then the 8th is a holy convocation of Sabbath. We're keeping it today. So this is the day that Jesus stood up and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. He that believes on me, as the Scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. So Isaiah 35 and 65 are talking about physical pools and water and beauty in the desert. But there also is there a greater, a spiritual outpouring of the water of the Lamb. But there's some interesting things about that. He opens it up here on the last great day to all who might come to me. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. Now that's a change. In John 6, 44... He says, no man can come except the Spirit of the Father draw him. 
In other words, at the time when John began writing this and wrote it, he was referring to Christ and the apostles and this age and coming to God and to his church has to be by the opening of your mind by God himself. The human mind cannot discern truly spiritual things. Some of them think they can, but they don't get it, really. So he has to open a mind before it can come during the present time. Now, he's talking about the last day of the feast, which represents the great white throne judgment, which we'll get to shortly to show that. And he says, anybody who wants to can now come. He's opening salvation to any and everyone. Whoever you are, if you want to partake, come on. An open invitation. In other words, your mind will be opened by God, whoever you are. And then you can make a decision as to whether you will come and worship Him or not. And if you do, then you'll have rivers of living water flowing through you. We could tie that in with Revelation 22. I'll go there just for a moment. Because it's describing the last chapter of the Bible. In chapter 22, after the new heaven and the new earth come, he's kind of uh, summarizing things here. He says in verse 12, well, he, he warns us in verse 10 and 11 that we are not to tamper with his word. Uh, Seal not the sayings of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. And he who is filthy, let him stay filthy. If you're righteous, stay that way. And if you're holy, stay that way. In other words, there's no more time to change. You are what you are, either filthy or holy. One of the two. Behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me, to give every man according as his work shall be. He's the beginning and the end. Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life, eternal life, and may enter in through the gates into the city. Well, this echoes what we already read about the filthy and abominable not coming in. For outside are dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers and murderers and idolaters and whosoever loves and makes a lie. Only those who have right to the tree of life will be allowed. So all who will, will not be allowed to enter. It depends on their conduct. It depends on their status with God. Now, to ameliorate that a little bit, what he said there in John 7.37, on the last great day, is it is now open to anyone who will come. It is offered. And those who accept will be allowed in, but those who do not accept will be kept without. Until the millennium is over, the great white stone judgment is over, 
and then there will be a judgment. Let's go to Revelation 20 and see this. Now this, obviously, is the end of the age, book of Revelation, almost the end of the book of Revelation, and he's talked about smiting the nations of the earth and putting down all opposition, and then the things that will happen afterward. And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the keys of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. Now this has to be, I think, uh, from Scripture, Christ himself. Uh, the three archangels do not have power on their own to overcome Satan. And there I quote Daniel, where Michael was sent to give a message to Daniel, and Satan interrupted him, stopped him, wouldn't let him pass, and they were to stand off for 21 days until another archangel came, and the two of them were stronger than Satan, and then the message came on through. So there's spiritual warfare going on there all the time. But one of the angels does not have the power to do what this is talking about. Who vanquished Satan? Who defeated him? Christ did. He has the power greater than Satan's. So a messenger, a being, uh, is what the Greek would say, came down, having a key of the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil, and Satan, let's be sure who this is, and bound him a thousand years, put the chain on him, and put him away, and cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal upon him, that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed, a little season. So, during the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Christ, when you and I would be reigning with him on the earth, Satan will not be around to deceive people. What a relief that will be. He won't be working behind the scenes to deceive and pull people away from God, and all they'll have to fight is their human nature. It's bad enough. But when you combine Satan with human nature, you've got a real mess. Witness the world today. And I saw thrones, verse 4, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Now, when it mentions 666 and the mark in the hand and the head earlier in the chapter or the book, it says the whole world is going to worship the beast. They'll accept the digitized money, and that's the only way they'll be able to buy and sell and other than their paganism, the way you recognize what it is you're dealing with is it'll get down to the capacity to buy and sell. That's a tip-off. That's a definition to you and me. Now, we're 
working into that system now. They've done it with credit cards. Now, you can still buy and sell without a credit card. It's getting where it's more inconvenient all the time to buy and sell without a credit card. They're beginning to remove cash, and some people don't want cash anymore. Now, I still like cash, but I don't like change. I don't like pennies and nickels and dimes in my pocket because, A, they're almost worthless. B, you got to count them and haul them around. And what's the point? Because prices are getting so high. Used to, I'd bend over and pick up a penny. I don't even bother anymore. I'll still, I'll still bend over and pick up a dime, but not a penny. And my thought is, what if I slipped a disc bending over to get that penny? Was it worth it? <laughs> I'll still gamble on the dime. But maybe I'll get where I want to pick that up. In fact, it says they'll get where they throw their money in the street and no one will want to pick it up. Because you can't use it. You can't buy anything. There's nothing to buy. And the only thing you can buy, and the only way you'll have to pay for it, is to chip in your wrist or your forehead. And that is a dead giveaway of the B system. Do not ever come to the point you will accept a method of payment that is the only method of payment there is. Because if you have, you will have accepted the mark of the beast and you will die. That's all there is to it. God will not permit. Because you worshipped the beast and his image and his form of payment. So, the ones who are in the first resurrection will come up at that time and live and reign with Christ a thousand years under the millennial conditions we've just read about in Isaiah. But the rest of the dead live not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. So, resurrection of 144,000, Revelation 7 and 14, show that these are the first fruits. No more, no less. The first resurrection is 144,000 who are the bride of Christ and live and reign with him for a thousand years, but the rest of the dead live not until the thousand years are finished. So the only ones alive will be the bride who was either changed or resurrected, and the people who lived through the Holocaust, the hundred million that are lived alive for Christ to judge uh, in the millennium, and they will, of course, increase in numbers through the millennium. But those who have died throughout all the generations of mankind, from Adam and Eve on down, will not be resurrected until a thousand years are finished. Now, this blows all the Protestant and Christian beliefs of various kinds about uh, going to heaven or going to hell when you die. Uh, they think you're still alive with an immortal soul. No. It says the dead know nothing. And they rest knowing nothing until they're resurrected. So there is no ever-burning hell today, or none of them have gone to heaven. 
Acts makes it very clear. No one's gone except he who came down, including David, who's going to be king of kings, or not king of kings, the king of Israel in the world tomorrow. So he's still in his grave waiting for the resurrection of the 144,000. Nobody went there. Your relatives didn't. My grandma's not there. She thought that's where she was going, but she didn't go there. She's just in the grave waiting till a thousand years is over. There's no limbus in phantom. There's no purgatory. There's no beatific vision. That's all demonism. Protestant, Catholic, Lutheran, uh, Shinto, any religion. See, nearly everybody on earth believes in some kind of immortality of the soul. So when you die, then you're reincarnated in someone else. Mormons believe that stupid thing, as do a lot of Asian uh, religions and cultures. So you don't really die. It's just demon possession. General Patton said he could remember the battlefield and the war and everything that happened in wars a thousand years before he was born. How could he do that? Because the same demon was back there a thousand years ago on that battlefield that came and inhabited his mind and showed him that stuff. It wasn't reincarnation. It was just demon possession or influence. Is all it was. And there's a lot of that. Why don't we think that's continued? All through the New Testament, Christ was casting out demons. The apostles were casting out demons. I've cast out demons in Christ's name. I didn't do it. I had no power over them. But his name did, I'll guarantee you. And they left. So people are still being demon-possessed. We have fancy names for it today, bipolar. Or what are some of the other psychiatric terms? But there's lots of them. It's just demonism. Is all it is. They're still alive. They don't die. They inhabited somebody before Noah. They can inhabit somebody today. And they can impart memories of those things if they so choose. And apparently they did with General Patton. Well, I don't know how to fight this battle. And then the thought comes, oh, that's the way they did it a thousand years ago. Okay, that'll work. That works. He can see it on the screen in his head. And then he'd go do it, and it worked. No, when you die in this physical earth, you go dust to dust. The spirit in man, the recording, is innate. Can't think, feel, see, hear. Goes back to God. The record of you goes to God. And when it's time for the resurrection, whichever one you're in, that'll be combined with a new body, and that put back in there. Because he keeps record of everybody that's lived. So, the rest of the dead didn't live till a thousand years were finished. Blessed and holy is he that has part in the first resurrection. On such, the second death has no power. 
but they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now, there's your first indication here that there is a second death. We live once physically, and then there is a judgment, each in his own order. There is an order of resurrection and an order, then, of judgment as well. And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, speaking of the mass of humanity, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. Now, we live in a world today where it says in Scripture that Satan deceives the whole world. And other than a very few who have been called out, he has the whole world deceived. Remember the song? He holds the whole world in his hand and keeps the whole world in his hand. That's not God. <laughs> That's Satan the devil that holds the whole world in his hands. Now, in a larger sense, God overall still has control of what goes on down there. So the song is correct in that sense. But in terms of everyday government today, Satan holds the whole world in his hands. And the beast and the false prophet are going to make it where everybody that accepts the mark will be in his hands until the fit man comes and binds him. But it's amazing that after a thousand years of no fear, peace, security, plenty, no, no tears, just a wonderful time on the earth, he's turned loose, and he amasses people as the sand of the sea immediately. He's only loose for a short season. That's all. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints and the beloved city. So the beloved city will be here, the New Jerusalem, at the end of the millennium when Satan is loose. It will have been here since the beginning of the millennium. That's when the new heavens and the new earth come down. So they'll encompass it. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet were, it should say, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. It doesn't say man will be in ever-burning hell forever and ever. It says Satan will be cast into that same fire that consumed the beast and false prophet. Because Christ takes them by the nap of the neck and tosses them in there when he returns. So he is going to be in solitary confinement and his demons forever and ever according to this. Now after, see, this is the end of the millennium. He's released a little while, deceives a lot of people who come against God and the saints, and they're wiped out by thunder, lightning, fire, fire and brimstone. And then, verse 11, I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, 
and there was no place found for them. Everything kind of goes away when Christ in his glory shows up. There's neither night nor day, but the light of his face. And then what happens? And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which are written in the books according to their works. The Protestants will tell you we don't need works. But these people will be judged by their works. The sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead, or the grave is what hell uh, should be translated, delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works, and the grave and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So what this is telling us then is that the end of the millennium, after Satan deceives people and they come against God and are devoured in fire and brimstone, then you have a resurrection <laughs> of physical people who were not in the first resurrection. It says the rest of the dead didn't come up until after the thousand years were finished. So this is after the thousand year millennium, and these dead people come up. Well, who could it be? It could only be people who've lived before who were resurrected. You don't get resurrected if you weren't ever wrecked. Resurrected means you've come back from having been. So, the only people in that category at this point will be people from Adam on down to the beginning of the millennium, and maybe those in the millennium who were accursed will come up, well, a little after. But these are people who died maybe as babies, maybe as abortions, Maybe as people who lived a long life on the earth but never knew who God was or cared who God was. They just lived their life. And they may have been in all kinds of strange religions or no religion or whatever they were. Whether they lived a day or a thousand years, which some did, almost. They'll be brought to physical life and this book is going to be opened and it appears they'll be given a hundred years of life. And you can't judge them until they've had some works, right? So they'll be judged by their works. So you can't judge that baby that died when he was two days old by his works. He has to be given a period of time to grow up, to live a life, and then be judged. God doesn't judge us until there's something to judge by. So it'll be this book, and then there's the book of life where God writes the names of all those whom he's going to have in his kingdom forevermore. So those two are open. And you're either being put in the book of life or not. So then you have a lake of fire, 
And all those who are accursed, all of those who did not accept God's way, all of those who turned from God's way once they knew it, go into the lake of fire, and that's the second death. So by that time, everyone who's ever lived will have had opportunity to serve God or not. If they did, they'll be turned in the Spirit and live in the kingdom of God forever and ever. If they reject and are unwilling to live God's way, they'll simply die in a lake of fire. They're human, they'll burn up. Satan is spirit, he can't die, he won't burn up. But if you're cast in there, uh, you'll die. Now that way, everybody who is in, who is still alive, who is in the kingdom, will be obedient to God and have access to the heavenly Jerusalem. And everyone who denied God or disobeyed will be burned up and forgotten. The end of that. All decisions having been made by the end or the end of the eighth day of the feast. This day. This day pictures the time when all your relatives who did not know the truth or were deceived by some false religion are going to come up and have a chance to live and know God's way and know God and obey Him or not. Every last one of them. And that includes some of the most despicable people you can think of. Do you really think Hitler and Mussolini and Napoleon and uh, Genghis Khan and some of those people have had their chance at life? No, they never knew God, didn't know who he was, didn't know anything about him. So they will have their chance. Maybe some of them killed millions of people. Stalin. And you'd think, well, they ought to go to hell. Well, by what they did on this earth, yeah. (laughs) But they never had a chance at a different kind of life. So they'll have that opportunity. And if they were an innocent child that died, he will also get his opportunity. See, God allows repentance. Isn't that a beautiful thing? You can repent and overcome and be part of the kingdom of God. So it doesn't matter how bad you were on this earth if you didn't have your chance. Now, the problem with that is you and I have had our minds opened, and this is our chance. And God is going to judge us on this life we are currently living. Now is a day of salvation, the Scripture says. A day of our salvation. So, at the end of this life, when Christ returns, we will either be in the grave and resurrected or changed, if we qualified. But if our name is not there, we won't be resurrected until the third resurrection and be cast into the lake of fire. The judgment of the people in the millennium, they'll have a hundred years to accept God's way under better conditions with no devil around. People in the great white throne judgment represented by today will have a chance to live probably a hundred years the same without the devil around and have a better chance at obeying God and being saved. 
all Israel shall be saved. But that's going to be during the millennium and great white throne judgment, not today. Now you say, we've got to make room for Stalin and Mussolini and some of these people in the great white throne judgment because they haven't had a chance yet. But it also gives hope for a lot of mothers and fathers who had children that were miscarried. They'll be resurrected. I have no doubt of that. Mr. Armstrong used to question it. Well, I think they have to have the breath of life, he'd say, before they will have been resurrected. Well, if that's the case, what's wrong with aborting? It's not a human yet, so get rid of it. No, I don't think that's the way God looks at it. If that child is conceived and it becomes a miscarriage or an abortion, it will have its chance in the great white throne judgment. It will be brought up, resurrected, and live a hundred years, and then be judged by its works. God will judge nobody without giving them a chance to obey him. He will judge everybody after they've had a chance to obey him. Now, I'm saddled with the responsibility that he's already showed me. And I have to qualify now. This is my judgment time. I'll either be part of the Bride of Christ or I won't be there at all. We're all in that boat now. That's the, the bad side of that, is we have the devil to fight and our nature to fight and culture and society all around us to fight. And those people won't have that. They will have a better chance overall in some respects than you and I do today because they'll have less to fight against. But the good side of that, the upside, is we will have a higher position in the kingdom of God, as the very bride, the wife of Jesus Christ himself. Now that's a pretty nice opportunity. So yeah, there's more pressure on us to do what we ought to do, but there's also more reward. And he says he'll reward according to the works. Now, salvation is not by works. Salvation is a gift of God. But the reward is based on the works. So do good works and ask for grace and forgiveness that you might be given the gift of eternal life and go to the marriage supper and marry Christ. This day represents the last day in the holy day cycle that we keep year by year to remind us of the whole plan and purpose of God and the Feast of Tabernacles is not about you and me as much as it is those who survive into the millennium and on into the great white throne judgment. And when those times come, you and I will have already had our reward and be there as the bride of Christ to rule over those people and help them obey so they can have eternal life as well. That's what this day is all about. Thank you for being here. Thank you for all the work that's gone into decorating hall and making foods and sweeping floors and cleaning toilets and 
organizing activities and being in activities, uh, singing, making beautiful music for us to glorify God in. I appreciate your kindnesses and your love and your offerings and all those things that make up the feast. It's, it's been special. I haven't heard of anybody fighting or arguing or being upset. A little bit of sickness here and there we can deal with. Well, I saw you smile at each other. Did you have a fight? <laughs> I, I'm joking. <laughs> Don't answer that. <laughs> but no, it's been very pleasant and very enjoyable. And I hope <clears throat> at the end of these eight days we're closer to God than we were the day we got here. That's the whole point. So, thank you, and we'll see some of you tomorrow and the next day, and some of you will be gone for a while. So, be safe, be careful, Godspeed. Please take your hymnals, brethren, turn to page 40, page number 40. Give thanks. And offer praise, and following this, we'll be led in closing prayer by our pastor, Darrell Henson. Page 40. 